That's Matthew 13, starting at 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl, who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus, this is God's word. Father, thank you for your word to us, and thank you for the way that you have clearly revealed the Lord Jesus in the pages of scripture, in history. And we pray that by your spirit as we uh, look at your word this evening, as you speak to us, that you would strip down our uh, pride and the things that stop us seeing him clearly. And that we might be in a better place uh, this week and going forward to see how good our saviour, the Lord Jesus, is. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, it seems there are a few uh, controversial people at the moment. I don't know who you think is the most controversial of these. Uh, Julian Assange, the guy from WikiLeaks. Uh, Kevin Peterson. Goodness, he's uh, pretty controversial in cricketing circles at the moment. But I think you'd have to say at the moment Prince Harry is, uh, has probably stolen uh, all of the headlines uh, on that. Um, you might not think that he divides people or there's much uh, controversy. Or is it uh, controversy? Oh, no, I'm not quite sure. But uh, here's, here's what they're saying on Twitter at the moment about him. Uh, 77-year-old Patrick Kane from South Shields says, uh, if he's using his money to carry on like that, he should be paying his own way and get a proper job. He's in the royal family, and he should not act like this. Newspapers should be able to print the pictures to show what a freeloader he really is. Okay, there's uh, Frank Speeding. On the other hand, though, 16-year-old Shannon Kincaid from Hepburn says, it's good seeing someone in a position such as his having a good time. It shows that they're not all stuck up. And makes people see royals in a more positive light, I think. He's only young. He can do what he wants. There you go. Make your own mind up. Controversy. 
Here's a person who's, it seems, divided opinion. What are we to make of him? Is he the, is he the court jester? Is he the, you know, is he the crown jewels? Which, which is he? Which, what are you meant to think about this guy? Now we're looking for the next few weeks at a series that we've called The Controversial Jesus. And so I want to start with the question, do you think that Jesus is controversial? Do you think he's a figure who divides? Or is he fairly straightforward? I mean, many people would say, Jesus Christ, he is fairly straightforward. He's, he was just a nice guy in history. He lived for a while. He walked around in flowing robes. He told people, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, what's controversial about that? He was just teaching love for each other people. Uh, he was gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That would be one picture of Jesus Christ. But actually, as we look at uh, these verses in Matthew 13 and 14, Twitter would have absolutely gone mad about Jesus Christ when he walked on earth. People would have been divided, as we see in these verses, about who he was, about his identity. And so, as I said, a new series on the controversial Christ. And if you've been here for a little while, we've been working through the book of Matthew at various stages in the last couple of years of our church family life together. So some will have been here a couple of years ago as we looked at Matthew 10. Uh, we're in there. Uh, Matthew 11 to 13, we've been in the mornings since then. And in those chapters, we saw the, the nature of Jesus' kingdom. So we saw this king come in and show the technicolor world that he promises to bring in. Everything he touches, he turns to color. He heals people. Raises the dead, he calms a storm. And then we've uh, seen in uh, the last chapter since there are parables that Jesus teaches that show that his kingdom, this wonderful kingdom, is going to grow and grow and grow. It's like a seed, a mustard seed that grows and grows larger than anything else. And Jesus has put himself on the map as the king of the kingdom. That's what's been going on in the last few chapters. And now these next few chapters that we look at up to Christmas, chapter 13 to 18, we see this king divides people. He's controversial. There's a fuss. Everywhere he goes, he's controversial. And if we haven't seen that Jesus is controversial, then we haven't yet seen the real Jesus of history. Because that's what we see in these pages in front of us. When he was on earth, he divided people about who he was. Just divided them in two. Who is this guy? People said. And the culmination, just to open your Bible if you've lost your place, page 983. Page 983. The culmination of this section about the identity of Jesus is when Peter, this fisherman, says of Jesus Christ, chapter 16, verse 16, Simon Peter answered Jesus' question, who do you say I am? Simon said, you are the Christ. The son of the living God. You're the Christ. You're the global ruler of the entire universe who's come to earth. And so that is where Jesus wants to take us. That's where God and his word wants to take us in these chapters, to come to that conclusion. But in order to get us there, he has to deal with, well, this evening, he has to deal with our pride. Because if we want to see Jesus clearly, And the lesson this evening is we need him to show us our pride, first of all. And so that's a message both for those looking in on the Christian faith this evening, trying to make up their mind about Jesus, 
as much as it's a message for those of us who have been Christians for years. If we want to see Jesus more clearly, well, we need him first of all to show us something about ourselves, our pride. And in today's passage, we see a group of people and then an individual who miss who Jesus is. Now, they're grappling with the same data about Jesus. Just look down in verse 54. They're both grappling with the same data about Jesus. It's, verse 54, his wisdom and these miraculous powers. That's the evidence. And in chapter 14, verse 2, it's exactly the same, the same words. That is why miraculous powers are at work in Jesus Christ. Same word. Both are dealing with the same data. Jesus is doing stuff. He's doing miracles. Twitter's going mad. Everyone's talking about him. What are people to make? And they miss him in these verses. People miss Jesus, not because of a lack of evidence, but because of a lack of humility. That's the issue that lies underneath both of these accounts of these people from the village and this king. Both miss Jesus for the same reason. Two types of pride, in other words lie underneath their failure to see him. So let's just dive in and see that the first type of pride for 53 to 58, it's it's resentment. It's resentment of Jesus that lies underneath this. Verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Now Jesus said in chapter 13 in the parables that we've had, that in effect some would see and some wouldn't see him. That some would be forever hearing and never understanding and now he comes into his hometown of Nazareth and he begins teaching and the questions start now it seems to start so well do you see that no one in these verses denies the existence of Jesus's miracles that's very significant when we're thinking about where do we start with this person Jesus no one in Jesus day denied the fact that he did miracles extraordinary things that caught the attention of everyone now their question actually is about their source. And their point is, look, we know, we know Jesus. I mean, it, as you look through, it starts positively. Where did this man get this wisdom? But it ends in verse 57, and they took offense at him. What's the issue? Well, they're saying, look, Jesus grew up in our village. We, we know him. I mean, there's his father, the, the, you know, the carpenter. We know his mother. We can name all of his brothers, his sisters. They live in the house just over there. I mean, the guy's played on our streets. Uh, he's made our chairs and our tables and our door frames. I mean, he's the carpenter's son. And they took offense at him. Well, what's going on? What's going on? Why? Seems so quick, doesn't it? But all of these things they know about Jesus and they take offense at him. Why? Well, I take it in one sense these aren't genuine questions. Where? Where do they come from? By the time we get to verse 57, they've quickly rigged the deck against Jesus. They've decided they don't like where his authority leads. It'd be like your, I don't know, if your, your boss saying, there's a new rival firm in town, and your boss says, now where does this, um, where does this firm come from? Where does it come from? And he asks suspiciously. 
Now, he's not really expecting you to come back and say, well, um, they've come from Glasgow or they've come from Basingstoke. The point of his question is, I don't like where these, wherever they come from, I'm not sure about this firm. It's that sort of question that's going on here. They, they've clearly decided, verse 57, to rig the deck against Jesus. Literally, that word is they're scandalized by him. They, they trip up over him. He's an offense to them. I mean, they know him from their hometown, but they're scandalized by Jesus. So there's something else going on in these questions. And it seems that it's a dislike of Jesus' authority. That's a growing sense that happens in these next few chapters. A growing sense that the more Jesus states his authority, the more people reject him. So it's clear, at least at this stage, that he's claiming to be a prophet. Verse 57, in his hometown, in his own house, is a prophet without honor. And he's going to push Peter all the way in the next few chapters and all of the disciples in the same direction to the point that he's going to claim that he's the Christ, that he's God's global king, eternal king, seated on the throne of the universe. That's exactly, and nothing less than that, that he wants to take his disciples to see. And the people in his hometown, they they take offense, they're scandalized that the carpenter's son could be going in that direction. And they resent his authority and his power. And so we're told that Jesus says only in his hometown, in his own house, is a prophet without honor. And he doesn't do any miracles then. I pause on that. I take it that that means. It's not that Jesus couldn't do miracles or that he's he's somehow bound by their lack of faith. But it's more that if he indiscriminately just does miracles, then it works against his main mission, which is to go to the cross. Now, do you see, but do you see, just step back, do you see how this problem works as you get these people in these verses? It's odd, isn't it? Because normally people who have power are honoured in their hometowns. I mean, think of all of the Olympic athletes going back to their hometowns. So Jessica Ennis uh, goes back to Sheffield. And if anyone was there or from 10,000 people pack the streets as Jessica Ennis comes back into the town. Apparently they all dress in gold and they deck all of the, the lamps in gold and she gets to be a part of the walk of fame in Sheffield. She sort of arrived as a person back into her. She's honoured. She's honoured because she's got fame and glory. She's brought honour upon the town of Sheffield through all that she's done. It's, it's odd. Why, why is it that Jesus, who's God, Jesus the prophet, Jesus the God-man, should bring such dishonour, it seems, upon his hometown so that he's not honoured there? Well, I take it that with Jessica Ennis, no one would be upset about her ability if she was just sort of moving back into Sheffield and settling down. But imagine that you uh, you are in the town and you went to school with Jessica Ennis and you want to build an extension to your house. And imagine by that stage, Jessica Ennis has the freedom of Sheffield, is the mayor of Sheffield, is on the town council, and you send your letter off. And you ask for an extension on your house, and for good reason, whatever, the, the letter comes back. And it's signed by Jessica Ennis, mayor of Sheffield, and it says, I'm afraid, I'm afraid to say we have to turn down uh, your application for an extension to your house. Now, at that moment, what happens? What happens to the information that you went to school with Jessica Ennis? Well, you use it against her, you say, 
Who does she think she is? I mean, I went to school with her. We were at primary school together. Who does she think she is that she should use her authority to work against me in that way? It's the authority. That's the issue. And that's the issue in these people's lives, in this village, that authority and resentment and pride rear up against Jesus. They're scandalized by him. If they wanted to see Jesus clearly, they needed him to show their pride to them. But they didn't, so they missed out. And Jesus moved on. Now look, your problem and my problem is slightly different. It's not. It's not that we grew up on the streets with Jesus or we saw him down at the market. That's not our problem. But our problem can be that question, who does Jesus think he is? It can be that question. It comes in different forms. But who does Jesus think he is? Who does this carpenter in flowing robes from 2,000 years ago think he is that he would have any say-so on my life at all? And we put Jesus in a box. Jesus, the, the, the guy in the picture storybook Bible that we read at primary school, this person that we put in a box, in a who does he think he is? That he could start to have authority over me. I mean, I lived 2,000 years away from any... Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is when he claims to be a, a global king? And so we, like these people, we rig the deck. We rig the deck against him. We say, we, we need to be shown some evidence. We need to be shown his credentials. But that wasn't the problem here. The problem was that they needed to be shown their own pride. That's what stopped them seeing Jesus. There were loads of miracles if they wanted to see them. But they took offense against Jesus. And so we may say we want to see Jesus, but if we want to see Jesus, we need him first of all to show us a bit more of our pride. And can I say for you, if um, I guess if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, that would be the issue, but it's just the same if you're a Christian. If we want to see Jesus more clearly, some of us will have been Christians for a long time. And as Matt said, you, you go away on holiday and and you're, you don't think clearly on holiday or you just come back and you're sitting here and you just feel stale slightly. Well, what do we need? Well, we need Jesus to show us. Up and come down into the, you know, this person from history. Rather than standing in awe of him. And many of us would know what that's like. Now, what's the answer? We need Jesus, first of all, to show our hearts before we can see him more clearly. I was on a holiday this last uh, week. And uh, one night, there was a terrifying electric storm. I mean, just lightning everywhere. All through the night, just kept going and going and going. I, I, eventually, I got to sleep, but there was one moment. It was like I just woke up, bolt upright. There was an enormous crack. I thought that someone must have just cracked a whip just outside. And there was this enormous bright light and the loudest noise I've ever heard just crashing. And I just sat up and froze like that. Such power. I mean, it was just outside. All of the car alarms went off. I think probably a bolt of lightning had just hit a pile. It was just extraordinary to be so close to such power. And of course, the Bible says that Jesus Christ stands at the top of every bolt of lightning. Just as as you see in Matthew 13 and the earlier chapters, Jesus raises the dead. He calms a storm. He heals diseases. That is the Jesus Christ that we worship. He has that sort of authority. We've sung in our songs this evening already, that is the Lord of history. He's the way, he's the truth, 
He's the life. He's the Lord of all creation. Ruling over all of the galaxies. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing less than that. So there's the first type of pride. It's a form of resentment against Jesus. Who does he think he is? But there's a second form of pride as well which stops people seeing Jesus. And it's in chapter 14. And in this haunting story of Herod. So we move now from a hometown to a palace and the news reaches King Herod, son of Herod the Great. But by this stage, Judea has been divided into a few different bits. So he's just Herod the Tetrarch, just over a smaller area. And it's clear when we meet him in these verses, verses 1 and 2, that he's a haunted man. And do you notice he comes to an odd conclusion about Jesus. It's not the one that most people come to when they come to Jesus. Everyone's talking about Jesus, his miracles, verse 1. And he says to one of his attendants, one of his servants, well, this must be John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. I mean, if you met this guy, you'd think that's a very odd decision to come to about Jesus Christ. But what's going on? Well, there's more to the story. It's clear that he's a haunted man. He believes that John the Baptist is at work. But why is he so fixated with John the Baptist? Why? Why does every thought come back to John the Baptist? Well, Matthew goes on. because he killed him. He had him killed. He had arrested him and buried underneath all of this, working itself out in Herod's life as a guilty conscience. So we're told that in a brutal act, he has John killed. Now, why? What's underneath the guilty conscience? Well, it's that John challenged his lifestyle. That's what it came down to. So underneath the weird decision was a guilty conscience. And underneath the guilty conscience was a challenge about lifestyle. And it worked itself out so that when he came to look at Jesus, he couldn't even see who he was. Couldn't work it out. And the challenge to the lifestyle, we're told in verses 3 to 5, Matthew lays that out for us. Herod had divorced his wife and jumped into bed with his brother's wife and now they were married and Herod and Herodias hated John because he challenged them on it and he said, you shouldn't be doing this. And they hated him and they wanted to kill him. And then we're told on his birthday, at his birthday party, the opportune time came. The moment came when finally they could get rid of this guy who was just the conscience on his shoulder day after day and week after week. And the time came and I imagine we're told, certainly there was uh, dancing, I imagine there was food and a banquet and drink and all of the lads were in the room. Where are the lads? And there was Herod on his birthday party. Big talk. Grand gesture and then into the room comes uh, the dancer. Daughter of Herodias dances and the mood changes. Hello. Hello pretty one. And then whatever you want. Whatever you want, I'll do for you. And she calls his bluff, verse 8, prompted by the mother. Oh, (laughs) wasn't expecting that. Give me the head of John the Baptist on a plate. Now, what do you do? Well, verse 9, the king's distressed, but because of the lads. Well, hey, the lads, you know, he's making a scene for them. He carries on. And I bet, verse 11, he was haunted forever and he never forgot the sobering moment went into the room on a dinner plate came the head of the prophet of God. I bet he never forgot the look on John's face. 
And it's clear that by the time we meet him at the start, he is haunted by that. He has a guilty conscience. But do you remember, underneath the guilty conscience was a lifestyle decision. And it was his pride that would not back down on that. And it was easier to hold on to that and kill a prophet than to let go of his challenged lifestyle. And that was the decision that he made and affected his ease of mind so that when he hears of Jesus, he can't see him properly. Do you see how that works? He put his lifestyle first and it affected his sight about Jesus. In fact, it affected everything, everything, his mental stability. And so with Herod, as with the first group, it wasn't a lack of evidence. I mean, it's clear, verse 1. That's why miraculous powers are at work, that there's evidence about Jesus. If you'd only look into it, but it's his lifestyle that wins, that he holds on to. It wasn't a lack of evidence, but a lack of humility. You will not invade my personal life. John, you will not invade my personal life. John, you will not, and I will kill you if you do. It was a choice. And he chose badly. Now, do you see, that is quite a modern, a modern situation. There'd be many people who would be very close to that, not with the opportunities, of course, that Herod has, but very close to that in their attitude to Jesus Christ. We're all tempted, you see, we're all tempted to put lifestyle first. And it affects our sight about Jesus, whether we'd be Christians or not Christians. It affects how clearly we see Jesus Christ if lifestyle trumps looking at Jesus Christ. So I don't know, some would say, I'm looking at Jesus, but to be honest, I've deep down decided that I will, I will keep sleeping with my girlfriend even if I find out the Bible says that I shouldn't. Decided. My lifestyle. Or I've decided deep down as I come to the Bible that I, I, I want to keep ripping people off at work even if I find that the Bible challenges me on my ethics at work. And Jesus challenges us on that and we say, Jesus, you will not invade my personal space. You will not invade my lifestyle. You will not have the say-so. And so that, that's the issue here in, in this passage. It's the issue both if we're Christians or if we wouldn't call ourselves Christians. Can I say if you're looking in on this, then the Bible would encourage you to ask good questions. It would encourage you to look at the evidence. So here there, there are miraculous powers. There are claims uh, in the Bible about Jesus' miracles. There's, of course, the... The key one, of course, is the resurrection. There's evidence that demands a verdict. So by all means, ask questions. Look into the evidence. But do you see what this passage is saying? It's saying you need to know something. You need to know that at the moment of decision, actually, about who Jesus Christ is, your lifestyle issues can come in and cloud your vision of him. And you just need to be honest about that. You just need to be honest that those things can cloud your view of him, that you can rig the deck against him. Here's a, here's a quote from a guy being honest about this. You've probably seen this one before by Aldous Huxley, the writer, who said this. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently assumed it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who, wants, who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do 
For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. It's very honest, isn't it? Very honest. See what he's saying? He's saying, I've got to be honest with you. It wasn't just philosophy that was driving this or lack of evidence. It was something else deep down. And the Bible is just honest with you if you're looking in on the Christian faith. That you have to know that that is a factor as you look at this. That lifestyle choices can cloud your vision of who Jesus is. And can I say just secondly a word to those of us who are following Jesus. And I include myself in preaching this to myself. That we want to see Jesus. We're Christians here. We want to see Jesus in our best moments. We want to see him more. Of course we do. We want to know him more. We know that's the best thing for us. And yet it's easy, isn't it, to just come back in and just to rush around and to uh, get anxious or to feel stale. And actually, this warns us that lifestyle choices can cloud our vision. We nurse a resentment. We will not forgive. We put an immoral lifestyle first. Or maybe it's just this. We, We just will not slow down and say no to some other things so that we can prioritize looking at Jesus. We just will not slow down. Say no to some things, just to prioritize our time with him. And and then we wonder why we don't see Jesus as clearly as we wish we did. We don't know him as much as we wish we did. And the lesson for us is the same, that if we want to see Jesus, if we want to see Jesus more this year as we get to September and look ahead as a church, if we as a church family want to see Jesus more this year and know him more, then we need to show him, first of all, our pride. That actually we put other things before him. And we need to say to him, I want to turn from that and I want to see you, Jesus, more clearly. Maybe that's a good prayer for you at the start of this year. Lord Jesus, I want to see you more clearly. I want to know you more this year. So do you see as we close, why do, why do people miss who Jesus is? Well, the answer from these verses is pride. Pride, two different types of pride, but pride nonetheless. So is that it? I mean, great, (laughs) terrific. We all leave here this evening. We all leave and our pride is laid bare and is that it? Well, yes and no. Yes, it's good for us to see that, but the reason that, do you remember the reason that God is revealing our pride to us is so that we can see Jesus more. It's so that he can take us to chapter 16, verse 16 and say, I see that you are the Christ and I worship you. That's where he wants to take us, but he has to take us through this first. And there's one more thing in the passage for us to notice. See, pride is the problem. And humility is the solution. Uh, Yes, your humility. Yes, your humbling. But actually, Jesus is humbling. His humility is is the solution, is the true solution. Just look at verse 12. Verse 12 of chapter 14. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. So they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, the prophet's been killed. And the disciples bury his body. Now, don't you think at that moment, Jesus' mind must have raced forward. Because he was the prophet. He was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he knew He knew where it was going to end. He knew that he would be killed. He knew he had to be killed. And he knew that his disciples would bury his body. 
And Jesus could have said, well, I'm the king of the kingdom. Look, I've come. I've come in. You've seen me in chapters 11 to 13. I can do what I like. I'm the king of the kingdom. Jesus could have stood on his pride. said, I'm the king. I don't die for these people who don't even recognize me in my hometown. But he didn't do that. He didn't stand on his pride. His humility took him all of the way to the cross to pay for our pride in our place, our sin and our failure, that we might follow him. So do you see how it works? Yeah, he is showing us our pride. It is our pride that stops us seeing him as clearly as we could, just as it did for Herod and the people in the village. But he brings our pride to the surface that he might pay for it on the cross in his humility in our place. So the question for us as we close is, do we want to see Jesus? Do we want to see Jesus more clearly, whether we're looking at him afresh for the first time or whether we've known him for years? Do we? Do you? Do you want to see Jesus more clearly? We say, yes, yes, of course I do. Well, we have to let him show us our pride first. And then let him take us to the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us and thank you that uh, your son, the Lord Jesus, was not uh, some uh, irrelevant person from history, but he, he put himself on the stage of history as the king. And we pray that you would help us to engage with him as he wants to be engaged uh, with. And we pray as we do that, that we'd be honest about the things that stop us doing that, um, lifestyle choices, uh, putting you in the box. And we pray that we'd be honest because most of all, uh, we do want to see Jesus more clearly. We know that's the best thing. And so we pray that you'd lead us forward. Thank you that he went to the cross to pay for our pride. Uh, Lead us forward uh, individually, but as a church family this year, to see him more. And we pray it for his name's sake. Amen.